0: Blessing in each of those situations. I pray that you'd help us to honor and glorify you today in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, we are in 2 Thessalonians. Three long chapters of a book. And um, Paul is again the author of this and um, by two, two things we know this to be true. Uh, chapter 1 and verse number 1, he claims that he is the uh, author, and by the way, we don't need two references in the book to convince us that he's the author. Verse 1-1 one, one says it. Uh, that's all we need because it was given by inspiration, um, and we believe every word in this book. But there is another reference in chapter 3, and verse number 17, uh, where he also refers to the fact that he's the author of the book. We're not going to go through a lot of the information on the city of Thessalonica like we did last week, <clears throat> but if you'll remember from last week's lesson, um, they were already starting to uh, have some uh, doctrinal things that were uh, beginning to creep in. Paul's trying to instruct them and, and to strengthen their faith, to g- urge them and con- to continue uh, to be steadfast in some things and not to let them slip. And um, this this epistle, this second epistle, was written about three months or so after the first letter. And uh, he had to do it quickly in that case because um, from all apparent, purpo- all apparent uh, indications in chapter 2, I think it is, uh, we'll look at it here in just a little bit, it seems like there was a false teacher that wrote the church a letter and claimed to be from the Apostle Paul. Uh, so there was a, a counterfeit letter that was sent somewhere in between this. And so Paul writes this letter to combat the doctrinal error. So what was happening is they, uh, he taught, if you'll remember, by way of giving some comfort to them, on the day of the Lord and what happens to those that die uh, before the Lord's return. And so he dealt with that in the first epistle. And because he dealt with that, and that was about as far as he went, was just covering what was going to happen with regards to the resurrection of those that had gone and passed before Christ's return. He didn't give any time frames. He didn't give, um, it's not like the book of Revelation where it expounds in detail all of the things that are there. And so uh, one of the false teachers took advantage of that and came to the folks and taught them that, uh, they were experiencing the day of the Lord right then. Um, in the time of this, this writing, the church at Thessalonica was in undergoing great persecution, a uh, tremendous amount of persecution. And Paul tries to encourage them and help them in that in this second letter. But more importantly, he's trying to tell them that uh, the, this resurrection hasn't happened. This day of the Lord has not happened yet. Uh, and uh, there were some things that they were doing uh, because uh, they thought the day of the Lord had already come. Somebody was teaching them that. They were, they were going around and quitting their jobs and sitting around waiting for the Lord to come back. I mean, they, were that, they thought that it was that close and that imminent. And so Paul spends a pretty good deal of the book correcting that and then telling them that they are to uh, labor and work. So there's been some seeds of some doctrinal error that crept, crept in. One of the things that I think is fascinating is how quickly it happened. Paul wrote uh, 1 Thessalonians, and then three months later he's writing 2 Thessalonians. And I think we can learn something from that in the day that we live, and that is that if we're not watchful, if we're not careful about our doctrine, it can so quickly and easily creep in. We're living in a time, and I was talking with some fellows just the last week or so, uh, with uh, a couple fellows here in the church, and then a couple pastor friends of mine in the area that I took to lunch, and we were discussing some of this and how quickly it seems that even what used to be referred to as biblically sound churches uh, that are allowing doctrinal error to creep in. It's becoming the popular thing to teach. Um, they're, they're following after the teaching of men that are kind of in their camp or in their fellowship, if you will, uh, that they've heard from them. And they all want to be in, in agreement in one accord. And the Bible does teach us that. Uh, in fact, Paul teaches the Corinthian church that they were to be in unity but they had to also be careful of false teachers because you can't just be in unity for the sake of unity. You have to be in unity on right doctrine. And if you come around and you start saying, well, uh, we just don't want to make waves, so we're all going to get along together, but it's wrong doctrine. Something's wrong there. And it creeps in so, so quickly. And uh, there's two things that Paul's going to charge this church to do uh, because uh, the the day that, that the Lord is going to pour out His wrath on the, the sins of men, which is going to be during that, that end times event, during the tribulation period, because that is imminent. It had not yet happened, but because it was imminent, there were two things He told them to do. He said, number one, you need to be watching. You need to be watching. Uh, be ready for it. And then secondly, He tells them that they need to be working. Don't just quit your job and sit back and say, well, the Lord's coming back. There's no sense in doing anything. Let's just wait for Him. He teaches them that this ought to be a motivating factor to them to be watchful and to be working. By the way, uh, whenever I teach on prophecy, if you'll go back and listen to what we did when we dealt with Revelation last year, there are two things I say about prophecy, and that is, number one, we need to learn how to live now and uh, that we also learn how to work uh, and serve the Lord. That It ought to bring comfort to us, uh, but it also ought to bring conviction to our hearts in the area of serving the Lord. And it ought to be a motivating factor when we understand these things. And Paul tells that to this church. He says, listen, don't, don't just quit your jobs and expect everybody in the church to take care of you while you're waiting on the Lord's return. Keep working. Uh, keep working for not only to make a living, but also working and serving the Lord together. Uh, and uh, so uh, Paul tries to deal with this. Now, we talked a little bit about the day of the Lord. That's the term that is used in First Thessalonians when Paul first wrote it. If you'll remember, it talks about the fact that the day of the Lord uh, will come as a thief in the night. Uh, There's a lot of people, I've I've taught on this passage a number of times, there's a lot of people who, for years, said, well, that's dealing with the rapture. And then some other people came out uh, back in the 70s and 80s and said, oh, no, there's definitely a large portion of that Scripture that deals with um, the second coming of the Lord, uh, the tribulation period, the second coming of the Lord. And the truth is, if you look at the Scripture in context, uh, the day of the Lord here is used generically in the first epistle to mean all of those end-time events, from the time of the rapture till uh, the uh, millennial reign and then the eternal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's used generically in that sense. And when we get to chapter 2, in fact, let's just take a minute to look there. Look in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians and uh, verse number 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse number 1 this is what he writes to them regarding this he says now we beseech you brethren by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand so there's the verse that talks about uh, there was possibly a letter that was uh, trying to be portrayed as being from the apostle Paul So he says, don't be troubled by spirit, by word, or by letter as from us, as uh, that the day of Christ is at hand. But let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. And he doesn't use the phrase, the day of the Lord in this epistle. He refers to the issue that they're having a problem with specifically as that day. And what they're referring to specifically here is the judgment of God. That came the wrath that was poured upon them, because they were suffering such great persecution. It was easy for them to believe the false teacher that came in, that said the day of the Lord is already here, and um, and you know his coming is imminent. And it's you're you're going through this suffering that Paul talked about uh, in chapter five of Second Thessalonians. You're you're enduring some of this, and Paul said, no no wait a minute, that's not right. Uh, he said that day, the day that the wrath of God is poured out on the men. You're not going to experience that. Now you are going through some persecution, but that is certainly not the wrath of God being poured out. He said, "Well, what's the difference? <laughs> One is suffering for doing right. When the wrath of God is poured out on men, is suffering for their sin, for that which is wrong." And it's very important that uh, as Paul teaches them to be patient in tribulation, patient in their afflictions that they take that as we're being persecuted for right. And therefore, we ought to be patient and endure those persecutions. Be careful. And I, I preached a message a number of years ago, uh, and, and the gist of it was this. Are you a Job or a Jonah? And the reason that message was preached was Job suffered for doing that which was right. He's being tested. Uh, Jonah suffered for... <laughs> For running from the Lord, from fleeing from the Lord. And the the, the problem, I think, a lot of times in our lives is we have a difficulty discerning which one those are. When we start going through circumstances, trials of life, things that maybe don't seem to be going the right way, it would do us well to stop for a moment and ask the question, is this happening because I'm doing right and God is testing me, or am I living in a way that God is bringing some chastening into my life? And it's very important that we know those things. Because if we don't know whether it's his chastening or his testing, we may continue in sin thinking he's just testing us. And certainly God doesn't want us to do that. We've got to be careful of these things. So, uh, Paul talks about this, and he says, uh, in verse number 3, he said, Let no man deceive you uh, by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come uh, a falling away first, and that uh, man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So, He's talking here specifically when he says that day. He's dealing here specifically with the tribulation period, because he says that day shall not come uh, except the son of there be first a person falling away, and the son of perdition be revealed. Now the son of perdition is referring here to the antichrist, and that he will be revealed, and then that day of God's wrath being poured out will start, and not until then. So there is a definite start to the day of God's wrath, which is why the phrase the day of the Lord in First Thessalonians cannot mean simply the second coming. It has to refer to the entirety of the end time events because it says that that one is coming as a thief in the night. It'll be unexpected. No, it's not going to be, there's no signs for it. It's just sudden uh, and unexpected. Whereas the day of the wrath of God is certainly preceded by some signs. There is a definite thing that happens And then the wrath of God begins to be poured out. And so, uh, if you ever get confused on that, it's not going to make a difference for uh, someone's eternity, but it does help us to know and understand these terms a little better in both epistles so that we don't get confused. Because there are times, there are a few times in the Scriptures where the phrase, the day of the Lord, is specifically dealing with the second coming of the end time events. Very, very narrow defined. And you know that by the context that it's, that it's written in. So it's very important that you read the context of these things. Um, so he teaches them uh, that they should be laboring for the gospel rather than being uh, lazy and just kind of laying around and being lethargic. Uh, that the proper response to the imminent return of the Lord uh, is to be ready, to be watchful, and to be laboring, working for the Lord. So there are three basic sections, uh, easily divided pretty much by chapter. Uh, Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Three major sections of the book. The first one is Paul uh, begins, he he takes two verses of chapter (coughs) 1 to give a salutation to him and a greeting. And then the rest of chapter 1 he uses to uh, give thanks about the fact that the uh, church at Thessalonica was growing. In two areas. And even though there was some doctrinal error coming in, there were some good things that were happening at the church. And Paul refers to these two specific things as things they were growing in. Number one is their faith. They were growing in their faith. Uh, Look with me in verse number three of chapter one. Paul says this We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, meaning that word meet there again, meaning proper or suitable or fitting. Uh, that's not a commonly used word. We don't always know what that means. I don't want you to think we're getting ready to have some pork steaks for lunch today. That's not that kind of meat, okay? Uh, uh, as it is meat, because that your faith groweth. And notice, he doesn't just say groweth. It groweth exceedingly. So this church, yes, there's some doctrinal error that's creeping in, and that's because they haven't had a whole lot of instruction. If you'll remember, Paul wasn't there for a very long period of time. So they didn't have a ton of instruction. Um So Dr. O'Hara was creeping in, but they were very sincere people. They had a hunger and a thirst to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was not a dead church. This was not a church that was uh, apostate or was backslidden. Um, They had some problems, but innocently they were done because they just didn't know any differently. Uh, This was a church that was growing. It was thriving. They were growing in their faith exceedingly. And then the second area is that they were growing in their love. Now, notice what he says here. Uh, and uh, he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is me, because that your faith growth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other. Notice this aboundeth, aboundeth. And of course, any time we see the word abound, it's it's more than just meeting the need. It is more than is necessary. Abounding is uh, the cup running over kind of an idea. Uh, and so a very good uh, commendation that he gives to them. He does this to encourage them uh, because of all the persecution they're going through. A lot of them have become discouraged. And so uh, beginning in these next few verses, following uh, verses 3, uh, he begins to encourage them uh, that they are to be patient in their persecution because of God's promise to deliver them. And look with me, if you will, in verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all of the persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, (coughs) who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to uh, to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And so He tells them two things. He says, listen, be patient in your tribulation. Those people that are persecuted right now, God is going to judge them. Hang in there, folks. That's what he's saying. Uh, Be patient in this tribulation. Be steadfast in it. Uh, God will deliver you. And when he does, he will bring judgment on those that are the persecutors. And uh, then at the very end of this chapter, uh, as we get down to the last few verses, uh, he he tells of uh, what he prays for for them. Um, Look with me in verse number 11. He says, Wherefore, also we pray always for you. And I want you to notice what he prays for. First of all, he prays for God to fulfill their work of faith with power. So uh, let's see what he says here. Wherefore, also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. That's an interesting phrase, and I think it would do us well to hold on to that phrase. If we're to work because we know that the Lord Jesus is coming and time is short, uh, it's not enough for us to simply work, but we ought to work with the power of God resting upon us. And the prayer of Paul to the church was that God would fulfill that work of faith with His power. In other words, He was not going to require them to do it in their own strength. And so this brings a comfort to these people to realize that this labor that they're doing is not something that they just do of their own accord, but something that the Lord works in them to do and gives His power. So this is one of the things that Paul prays for for them. Secondly, uh, he prays that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in them and them in Him. Notice he says in verse 12 that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him. And then he says this, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he prays... Uh, for them to be uh, fulfilled in their work of faith with God's power, and for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be glorified in them according to His grace, that which He gives to us. And I will say this. We talk often about having right testimony and living a life that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. We do that because we do not want to cause a reproach for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... It would be it would be simple. It'd be very easy. In fact, it'd be we'd be very prone to uh, become prideful if we're not careful about the testimony that we have. Even if our sincere uh, heart's desire is to not bring reproach to Christ, but to honor Him, and we labor and we work for our testimony, if we're not careful, we will become very prideful in our testimony. These are people that become almost pharisaical about others who are not quite as quote-unquote spiritual as I am. You know what I'm saying by that? These are people who become very critical of others who haven't quite attained the level of spirituality that you have, or they have. Um, So we've got to be careful of this. That's when it becomes very prideful. Because the truth of the matter is this. There would be no testimony in our life at all. At all if it were not for what God has done for us. That testimony is not anything that you and I can glory in. It is done for one reason, and that is because we have a heart to please Him and to draw glory to Him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter number 5, when he gets to the similitudes, uh, he makes the statement that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not you, but your Father. The testimony that we live in this life is not so people will pat us on the back and tell us how great of a Christian we are. That is not the goal. And I've met a lot of Christians over the years that they pride themselves in their testimony. They want that, that, that um, honor. They want that recognition on this side of heaven about how good their testimony is. And yes, I know we want to be a, a light to those that are lost. I'm not saying that. But the reason we have the testimony is not to glorify ourselves and make us look better. It's to make Christ be glorified so that people can see Him working through us. And the more people understand that we're nothing more than a sinner that's been saved by the grace of God, and look at the life God has put in me, we begin to glorify Him. And so that's why the testimony is so important. Not because it glorifies us. It glorifies Him. This is one of the things Paul prays for for these folks. He says that that, uh, Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in him, according to the grace of our God, that which we did not deserve. God gave us the ability, the privilege, if you will, to bring glory to Him. And we all take full advantage of that. We'll take full advantage of it. The second uh, section of the book, after he deals with encouraging them during this time of persecution, giving them a little bit of an exhortation there, then he starts uh, in chapter two, uh, giving further explanation of this. A Day of Wrath that comes during the end time events that God's going to do and uh, we already mentioned there in chapter 2 that it appears that uh, someone probably wrote a letter um, that, that was taking credit saying this is from Paul and it really wasn't because uh, Paul puts a warning in there about if they get a letter even that seems to be from them and it's teaching something different that don't give heed to that that's not right so, to be careful of those things. Um, they were very disturbed uh, with this false teaching because Paul had said that these things were to bring a comfort. If you'll remember, at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And here they are being persecuted. And if this was the wrath that Paul spoke of, then Paul must have been wrong about it because here we are not being comforted, we're being persecuted. Uh, so, Paul had to explain this and get it straight uh, and make sure that they understood that the truth was still the truth. Uh, about the end times and the wrath of God coming, that their persecution was for the time being, uh, not for evil doing, but for doing that which was right. Um, He assures them that that day is not coming out, that there's going to be some signs before that happens, and of course one of them being that the son of perdition will be revealed, Um, and then that will be the start of uh, the day that the Lord uh, uses to pour out His wrath. And then he ends uh, this with a, a word of encouragement. As he ended chapter 1, or that portion of his letter in chapter 1, with a prayer, uh, he ends this uh, additional instruction about the day of God's wrath with some encouragement. And so let's see what he says here. Um, let's go down to uh, verse number 6. of. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Let's go, <laughs> let's go down to um, 15 of chapter 2. Verse number 15 after he's done teaching them about the day of this wrath of the Lord, he says, therefore, brethren, now these are the things he's going to charge them to do and and encourage them in. Stand fast. And can I tell you this? I I wouldn't encourage you in this, but my dad years ago, um, when I was not doing something or he didn't think I was being uh, productive enough in my life, he'd say, Greg, do something. Even if it's wrong, do something. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, because he didn't want me just being lazy or sitting around. And I would say this, folks, stand fast. Stand fast. Now, we don't want to stand fast in something wrong, but we need to stand fast. Having done all, the Bible says to stand, stand therefore. Once you've made every preparation, once you've studied this book, once you've learned the doctrine, then stand in it. Be steadfast. Don't be uh, blown about with every wind of doctrine that comes about. Uh, Don't be swayed. By the philosophies of men. Don't be convinced or deceived by the doctrine, the false doctrines of false teachers. Be steadfast. Now, in order for us to be steadfast, we have to be solid on what our doctrine is. There's only one way we can anchor our doctrine to absolute truth, and that is if we get it from the Scriptures. We've got to know this book. We've got to read it. We need to study it. We need to be able to handle it well. I am amazed at how many people over the years that I have seen that get out of high school and they'll go to four years of college at least, at least. How many of you remember your college days? Were they hard? How many of you don't remember your college days? You're that old. They were hard. You had to study hard. You were, you were working long hours. You were trying to do term papers. Some of them decide they're going to go into a medical field or some specialized field, and they go four more years to college so that when they are sought after in the field that they have studied, they are known and recognized as someone who knows how to do what they've been hired to do. They came out a number of years ago with a little commercial of a guy in an operating room getting ready to perform brain surgery, and somebody looked at him and said, Are you a brain surgeon? He said, No, but I stayed on a Holiday Inn Express last night. That's not the person I want operating on my head. I want somebody who's gone to college. I want somebody who's gone and done a continuous training and education and has kept up with the cutting edge of the medical community. And it amazes me that we will dedicate our lives to studying and learning about a career choice that lasts but a brief while. And when it comes to doctrinal things that matter eternity, we don't give ourselves to study. Folks, if there's anything in this world we ought to give ourselves to studying, it ought to be this book above anything else that we study. Because it matters. Doctrine matters. And so he tells them, be steadfast. And then he says this in verse number 15, Therefore, brethren, steadfast, and hold the traditions. Oh boy, there's that word. We don't like that word. <laughs> In fact, there's sometimes I preach against that word that we've got to be careful that we don't just believe something because of tradition. We believe it because it is doctrinally sound. But notice what Paul says here. He says in verse 15, Hold the traditions which have been what taught, whether by word or our epistle. Taught from who? Taught from the Apostle Paul. So hold fast to those things. Why? Because Paul, when he spoke and when he wrote, was speaking and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if we still had apostles, and if we still had revelation being given, new revelation being given, I would say say that we still need to hold to the tradition by word or by epistle. But we don't have word anymore. Paul did in his day, and that's why he told them that. But we don't have the spoken word of new revelation anymore. Now we have epistles. Now we have the writings. And so when it talks about the traditions, it's not talking about the traditions of the group of people who all come together and say, this is what we think we ought to believe. He's talking about traditions that are based soundly upon the inspired word of God. Very important that we understand that. Because we live in a day where more and more people are following traditions rather than the Bible. And as we said earlier, it's amazing how quickly doctrinal error can creep in. And not only creep in, but be embraced by people who should know their Bibles well enough to know better. And know, uh, as we get to the rest of verse number 15, he says, uh, Stand fast, hold the traditions which you have been taught, either by word, whether by word or our epistle. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So in his encouragement, he says you need to be steadfast. You need to hold to the traditions that have been given to you by word or by epistle. And then he says a, a, a brief prayer here, a brief blessing, if you will, to them that the Lord Jesus Christ <coughs> excuse me, will comfort their hearts and establish them in every good word and work. In word and work. Alright? Now that's the second portion, so that's where Paul further explains the, this day of wrath and gives them a word of encouragement here towards the end. And then the third, uh, uh, the third section, uh, of it is chapter number three. And this is an exhortation to the church. There are some things that he asked them to do. We're not going to look at all of this. You can read chapter three later this afternoon and see all this. But he asks them to pray for him. Uh, they, he exhorts them, you know, pray for us. Uh, he exhorts them to wait patiently for the Lord. This is that idea of being watchful. Uh, he's not here yet. He hasn't come back yet. Uh, The resurrection is not here yet. Keep watching Him. Be waiting patiently for Him. Uh, And then He tells them to reprove, or He has a little bit of reproof, uh, for those that have been using the truth of Christ as an excuse for disorderly conduct. Let's look in verse number 6 for a minute, of chapter 3. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Now, if we read that on the surface, we think, okay, this is a brother who's being carnal, he's living in sin. But that's not what he's referring to. Let's read the context of it here. He considers this brother who's walking disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Again, that tradition being by word or by epistle. He says, "...for yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any men's bread for naught." But wrought with labor and travail night and day. In other words, he's saying this this thing of, of uh being disorderly is dealing here with being lazy. He says, We didn't we didn't eat bread for naught. You didn't take care of us when we came. We labored for our food. We labored night and day for it. That we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when you were uh, we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Now you need to keep in mind, in the early church, there, because of the persecution, a lot of people were disowned by their families. They were fired from their jobs. If they had jobs, most of them were apprenticed under either a family member or a local businessman, and they would lose that position. And so Christians were starving to death. They did not have a good way to make ends meet. And someone who was legitimately in need, that that could not work, could not labor, the church had all things common. The book of Acts talks about that. The story of Ananias and Sapphira was part of that movement where people were selling what they had and bringing it to the church and letting the church disperse it to those that had need. Uh, and that's that was a transitional period. That was a, a time that the church did that. And what Paul is saying here is, uh, those that are able to work, work. These aren't people who have lost their jobs because of persecution. These are people who are quitting because they think the day of the Lord is at hand. They think, hey, the, the rapture is getting ready to happen. and They're being lazy. <coughs> so He commands them that if they don't work, they shouldn't eat. These people were being a burden to other Christians and other brothers and sisters in Christ. I think our charity, even in, in the church that we have today, uh, we try to be very, very careful. We want to help everybody that we can help that has a legitimate need. But if somebody's out there driving a nicer car than any of us and decides they don't want to work, and then they call us up and say we can't pay our electric bill, well, my friend, go get a job. If you need a job, I'll give you a job. we got plenty of stuff to do. But if there's a legitimate need, that's when we come into the aid of our, our brothers and sisters and we try to be a help to them. Verse 11, he says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. So again, this word disorderly now is used three times. He says uh, to uh, get away from them. In verse number 6, he says, Withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. He talks about the fact that he had not himself behaved himself disorderly. And now we find here in verse number 11, he uses again uh, that they heard that there are some which walk among you disorderly. And again, dealing here with (coughs) laziness. Not a life of sin. Not, this isn't dealing with, like in Corinthian church, they had adultery going on in the church. This isn't what it's dealing with. It's dealing specifically with the idea of, it's just not right, it's not proper. Uh, for you to sit back and take your ease and have other people care for you when when you can get out here and you're able-bodied and can work. And so Paul deals with them about this. And uh, then he talks a little bit more about the um, uh, the doctrine of the day of the Lord. Uh and how it should apply to their lives. What what should it affect in them? And uh, so, um, two two things I believe that it shows um, is that they should walk in holiness. They should walk in holiness. And secondly, that they should uh, be encouraged to faithfully serve. They are to walk in holiness and be encouraged to faithfully serve. There are three, uh, three sections there that we talked about. Um, the time of Thessalonians uh, was written just a few months, as we've already mentioned, after uh, the uh, first Thessalonians. The key verses are chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. We've read those earlier, but I'll read them once again. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. That ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. And so, very important verse that clarifies... Some things from the first epistle regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 3 and verse number 5. Chapter 3. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. So the two key verses there. And then the key chapter is chapter 2. Okay? And I think that gives pretty much the wrap-up of the overview of 2 Thessalonians and what its purpose was. It was mainly to clarify uh, some things that they were misunderstanding because of some false teachers that came in, tried to take advantage of that, (coughs) to just sit back and let other people take care of them and not have to work. And Paul said, listen... The day the day of God's wrath is not here yet, be watching for it. But you need to work; you need to get out here and do the work that the Lord's giving you to do. So, hope that'll help you as you go through that uh, epistle to understand it a little better, knowing what it was uh, about, why it was written. And uh, hope that'll help you. We'll be back in about oh, maybe 16 minutes or so. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word, and as we've studied these, uh, especially these New Testament books, how it has been so helpful to us to understand the purpose, why they're written.